So just a heads up, this is our first podcast during the new reality of COVID-19. And this comes up a few times in the podcast. So I'm going to put this here in the beginning so that it'll provide a little context for people who are listening to this episode a year from now and wondering what the hell we are talking about. Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. My name is Chad. I'm Liz. And we are here in episode 114, where we will be covering chapters 99 through 107 of Brandon Sanderson's Oathbringer. That's right. And our next book club will cover chapter 108 through interlude 14 of Oathbringer. So we will be wrapping up part four and starting part five on our next podcast. Probably only two episodes remaining in our Brandon Sanderson Stormlight Archive coverage. Is that fair to say? Can you believe it? I can believe it. It's been a journey. It's it's been a very, very big project. The biggest project we have undertaken, for sure. For sure. So what do you think of this section? So that for me, this is when things are really starting to heat up plot-wise. We're coming into the last part, and things are getting pretty exciting, in my opinion. So what did you think? I mean, I like this section. It had... Um it had all my favorite things, like marbles. You do love and marbles. stolen clothes. <laughs> this is the Littlefinger's jetpack of episodes. Really? Yeah. Well, I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that in that we were all over the map, right? In Roshar, and then all over the map in Shadesmar. Just an awful lot of bouncing up here, there. Covering a lot of ground in this section. I mean, it helps when you have teleportation devices. It does. In the novel. Oh, yeah, for you know, sure. You don't really have to cut corners there. No. Exactly. It's like this literally is, everyone can teleport. This is actually consistent yeah, in, exactly. in, the, in the narrative. Yeah. <laughs> Chapter 99 is called Reachers. Calvin awakes on the ship in Shadesmar. He and Shallan debate which of them is more crazy over a nice cup of water. That's a great... I mean... I mean, that's kind of what happens. That's pretty much I... what happens, yeah. <laughs> uh, my first note is actually from the very first sentence. Mm-hmm. You know, Caledon awoke on the ship in Shadesmar. The others were already up. He sat bleary-eyed on his bunk, listening to the beads crash outside the hull. There almost seemed a, a pattern or a rhythm to him. Or was he imagining things? Listen, listen, Caledon. There's a rhythm to everything, and it's quest love. <laughs> I noted the rhythm comment too. In fact, I I noted a lot of times there seemed to be sort of a rhythm to natural things in Shadesmar and I think that's probably not by accident. I'm sure it's not. We we noted it last chap or last episode as well. So it's just a continuation of the theme that here these crazy humans are suddenly realizing that there's a rhythm to things. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. The, the the listeners aren't crazy. No, they just have stormlight-containing gem hearts actually in their bodies. So we get a lot of kind of world-building thrown at us in this chapter as well, now that we're literally in Shadesmar on a ship that is piloted by Spren. 
The spren on the ship are a kind that are called reachers, but they're light spren, so very common, it seems like. We find out the stormlight fades very quickly in Shadesmar, and that's sort of their currency. Unless it's contained in a perfect stone. Yes, they have perfect gemstones places. Which seems like a very, very obvious analogy for sin in a sort of New Testament Bible perspective. We find out that honor spren, I guess, are very rare, and Syl does not want to be recognized as an honor spren. In fact, she goes to great lengths to get Shalon to put a light weaving on her so that she looks human. Yeah, and there's a hint, I believe it's in this chapter, maybe it's in one of the other ones, but where Iko says something to the effect of, oh, we don't deal with honor spren. Mm -hmm. So it leads you to believe that it's because there's something about honor spren that people don't like, probably tied to the Erehedium and what happened in the past, but that's a guess. Or maybe they're all just huge dicks. We don't know. Maybe. Could be. (laughs) Could be. But we find out later in another chapter that as it relates to Syl, there's a much more specific reason why she doesn't want to be identified. She, as a particular honor spren, does not want to be identified. And oh, snap, Syl tries to get Kaladin to horn in on Shallan. Know, Even though right? she's engaged. She's like, that's not a bond. That's not, that's just a promise to make another promise later on down the road. Totally fine with that. Yeah. <laughs> Honor, schmoner, you need to get laid, Kaladin. I can tell. <laughs> so we see Kaladin also recognizing that he is sort of sinking into a dark place again. Um, he says he hated that he was the last to get up. That was always a bad sign. Hmm. And he has the the conversation with Shalon that he's been wanting to have about how does she stay positive even when all these terrible things have happened to her in the face of all of these terrible memories. And, you know, before when he had asked her that, she said, well, it helps if you're crazy. And now she tries to tell him, no, seriously, I have some serious problems. Yeah. You know, she says, I just shove it all aside and don't even think about it. And he's like, I wish I could do that. And she's like, no, no. It's not good. No, it's actually not good. He doesn't quite believe her. But I do But I do think this is the most sort of real, normal conversation about emotions that they've had. Absolutely. And it's kind of about time. Right. Uh, the only other note I have in this chapter is Iko says, do you know how to manifest souls? No, Kaladin said. Some of your kind do, he said. It is rare, rare among us, too. The gardeners among the cultivation spread are best at it. I am unpracticed. And I said, manifest souls. So I'm assuming here he means soul casting. Yes. Okay. Just their terminology for it. Yes. And we've met a cultivation spren. It's uh, Lift's Yes, spren. Lift's yeah. spren Wendell, the little vine, crystal mm-hmm. vine spren. He is a cultivation spren. He tried to warn us. So yeah, I, I had noted that as well. And I think finding out about all the different kinds of spren here in Shazmar is super interesting. I loved the the madras that are towing the ship reminded Shalon of the strange, unfamiliar arrow-like spren yeah. that she has noticed in different places where things seem lighter than they are. And we know through just some interviews with Brandon Sanderson that gravity on Roshar is heavier than... Normal gravity. I thought it was lighter than normal gravity. Maybe you're right. There is something weird about the gravity on Roshar. Listeners, if you can, if you have heard the interview that I'm talking about, chime in because 
I'm talking out of my ass, apparently. There's something different with the with the gravity. It might be lighter, but there's something strange about the chulls, first of all, and things flying that shouldn't be flying. Mm -hmm. That they always see these arrow-like spren around them, and the madras remind Shalon of those spren. Well, like sky eels make no sense. Exactly. I mean, from a physics standpoint. Right. Also of note, I think that Shalon, Kaladin takes Shalon's sketchbook from her and just starts flipping through. And he notices that half the drawings are really shitty. (laughs) So it looks like Vale has been trying to draw. Yeah. Or Shalon at when she is Vale or Radiant is trying to draw. And can't. And and literally cannot do it. She has shut that part of her, her personality off completely. So that's just kind of, it's just kind of a reminder of like, Wow, yeah, she's got some problems. Mm, for sure. Chapter 100 is called An Old Friend. Dalinar tours Vadenar, still struggling to integrate his returning memories. Teravangian shows up to brag about his awesome half-shard. He's giving off major creep vibes, so Dalinar heads off to inspect the troops. Dalinar realizes, as he talks to the soldiers who survived the country's brutal civil war, that the Thrill has left Alakar to come to Vadenar. Confronted with the thrill again, Dalinar loses his shit. He's tempted by alcohol, violence, and a voice that entreats him to give up his pain. Eventually, he flees back to Urethiru and picks up the bottle once again. It's a messed up chapter, man. It was pretty messed up. So I loved this quote. Why was it that trying to stand tall should make you so much more likely to fall? And that's kind of crucial to what we see going on with Dalinar right here. He's trying to move past and still function in the light of his returning memories, but he's just getting hit harder and harder. And the more he tries to kind of stiff up or lip it, mm-hmm. the harder it gets for him. Yeah. My first notice, uh, we're here in, is Yakoved, right? It's uh, Vadenar. Vadenar, yeah. okay. But Kaladin thinks... The Dalinar is in Thalen City. Yes. Which, you know, when you're reading through this the first time, you're like, all right, Kaladin desperately wants to get to Thalen City. Right. Because he's certain that's where Dalinar is. That's right. not where Dalinar is. Right. He's not, he has no intention of going there. What's mm-hmm. this all about? Of course, we find out later what it is about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just an important note for me as I'm going through this, because again, there's a lot of jetpacking going on. And I'm trying to keep all these places in my head. Uh huh. So Vadenar is where Shalon is from. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we talk. Let's talk about T Vange uh, being creepy. Super creepy, man. Man, Dalinar. Man, he doesn't want anything to do with all of Teravangians. If you could go back and kill baby Hitler riddles, right? <laughs> right. But it's still wrong. <laughs> I can't tell one baby from another. <laughs> How many babies am I supposed to kill? <laughs> It's a mess, and Dalinar's like, I, I don't, I don't have time for this bullshit. I'm getting the hell out of here. I have my own moral quandaries. Like, why are you, why are you bringing this bullshit to me? The other thing I noted is, man, those shields, those like big kite shields, mm-hmm. they're fucking heavy, man. Mm-hmm. Like, they're not, they're not little things, mm-hmm. you know. And frail old Teravangians like hiking this out way up the stairs, mm-hmm. you know, to some big overlook, and he's like. I, I brought, who? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's times like this that 
I really want to contemplate ancient morality. <laughs> <laughs> it's neat because Dalinar and Teravangian both kind of exemplify one side of this, this moral question that's posed by the book mm-hmm. over and over again, really. What is doing the right thing? Can you can you do the wrong thing for the right reason? Or do you always need to like and do you how how does your moral code compare and and how how do you follow your own morality in, in a world where sometimes it feels like you need to do the wrong thing for the right reason? Well, one of the things that I really like about this series so far is it it constantly sort of has you evaluating what is or isn't the right thing in a given mm-hmm. set of circumstances. The whole concept of, you know, the honor spread and and being honor bound, and mm-hmm. it's completely fine for you to go out and kill as many listeners as you want to, but as soon as you kill uh, Rosharan now, all of a sudden that's a bad thing, and mm-hmm. why? You know, so it starts throwing sort of conventional you know, they're the bad guys, you know, morality. It makes you have to examine these right. things, you know. And this is a this is a, a particularly interesting one, I think, as well, you know, that Taravangian points out, as much as Dalinar doesn't want to engage in it, is the idea that, like, I understand it was wrong at the time, but I'm just saying, <laughs> 2,000 years later, right. when those people are already, are already dead anyway, yep. what would you trade now right. to have, you know... How would it benefit you now mm-hmm. for him to have been even more of a dick? And really what Taravangian is trying to justify is his own actions. Yeah, absolutely. He's he's intelligent enough to understand the moral implications of what he's done, but he's not intelligent enough that he doesn't care about it. So today yeah. seems to be one of the days he's kind of at a at a, a difficult spot when mm-hmm. he really kind of probably wants Dalinar to reassure him. Yeah. And Dalinar refuses to do that. He's, he's sticking to his side, you know, and I love the contrast with, um, Taravangian is, is overthinking his mistakes, but then he keeps saying, but I made the best choice that I could have, you know? And when you contrast that with Dalinar, who says, no, I, I haven't always made the best choice that I could have, but I own it. You know, he owns his mistakes and he remains willing to improve. And I just love what that says about this theme that like like raw power and talent is less important than humility and the willingness to change. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the importance of the willingness to grow and change is something that we see in every single character arc. The other thing I noted about this interaction with Teravangian is Teravangian sort of coming at it uh, or approaching Dalinar rather from from a more obtuse angle than he typically would. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's coming at him, you know, more directly, and he's not being the typical Teravangian that Dalinar knows. And I think if it wasn't for the fact that Dalinar is sort of oh, so wrapped up in his own issues, he might have noted Teravangian seems really weird today. But he's too mm-hmm. wrapped up in his own stuff, yeah. to really take note of where is this guy coming from. And he's so used to dismissing Teravangian, he's got a very set idea of who Teravangian is and what he's about, mm-hmm. that he's not going to be examining his motives anytime soon. Yeah. So then Dalinar leaves, and he wants to go talk to some of the soldiers. Right. And uh, I have this note here. Brightlord, he said and saluted. I fought your army at Slickrock, sir. Brightlord Nalinar's 2nd Infantry. 
Storm and fine battle that was, sir. Storm and fine indeed, Dalinor said, saluting him back. I figured your forces had us at least three different points. You know, I shit myself each time. <laughs> you'd think you'd run out, but you don't. You, you don't run out. Those were good times, Bright Lord. Good times before everything went wrong. Immigration, am I right? His eyes glazed over. What is wrong with these people? Remember when we used to endlessly murder each other? Those were great times. <laughs> what a weird conversation. That was a very weird conversation. And no, but nobody is like, I, I mean, what happens in this conversation, and I didn't catch it the first time because I was so focused on this sort of right. angle that what I didn't catch when I first read it is how sort of troubled they all are mm -hmm. about the thrill mm -hmm. and how overboard they went. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I didn't quite notice that mm -hmm. at, at first, you know, them sort of reflecting fondly back on the good old days when we just used to kill each other. Right. was so strange to me. But it, it is just a really bizarre interaction. Mm-hmm. And it's a neat take on the, the kind of the battle lust idea, which is something that is not new, that's been no. in countless works. It's a... It's a a very popular trope in fantasy literature, this idea of these berserker soldiers. So it's an interesting take on it. You know, what if it was caused by a supernatural, separate supernatural entity that could then move around and inspire it in different nations? I think that whole topic is fascinating within fantasy. And I don't mm -hmm. think it gets enough attention mm -hmm. as its own sort of topic. Because so, so often fantasy literature seems to necessarily revolve around war and combat. Mm -hmm. It always seems to. There are very few fantasy stories that don't involve some sort of war or conflict. Mm -hmm. They're out there, but just not that many of them. So it seems sort of inextricably linked to the genre. And it's also such a weird thing for us, this idea of one side accidentally killing its own soldiers mm -hmm. and how in a moment when you know hundreds or thousands of people are dying these sort of accidental deaths are more tragic and they play they play on us they mm -hmm. they eat at us more than the others mm -hmm. and i think it's interesting that it you see it pop up in fantasy as all these different authors and, and books and series attempt to try to rectify this and write it into into their worlds and their worldviews. And they talk about the berserker rage or that people are possessed by a spirit or there's this thrill thing caused by, you know, here in Stormlight. It's a pretty fascinating topic that I don't think anybody sort of, to my knowledge, nobody sort of looked at it in isolation and really kind of, mm -hmm. you know, looked at how different authors approach it. I'm not volunteering to do the study. <laughs> I'm just saying I would read it. I like Brandon Sanderson's take on this, and he does not flinch away from looking at the the effects of war and being in the military has on a person and the kind of very difficult moral quandaries that that people in, in military conflicts have to face. I, you know, that's another one that I really like and I really like when authors do it and treat it well. 
because one of the things I think that we also, again, we talk about fantasy and what it, what it says about our society and sort of, you know, it, for us, the people who really enjoy the genre, you know, it points to things about us that we want to sort of explore, you Mm -hmm. know, and we can explore it more starkly in this sort of magical world, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and so much of the literature it's departed from, but so much of it sort of stems from this sort of medieval idea and Mm -hmm. nobility and knights and things of that nature. But very often the reality is, is that the person who's at the head of the column marching into, you know, marching into the gap during the siege is often not the guy you want to bring home to mama, mm-hmm. right? That person who has that mindset and who can do that and remain calm, cool, and collected in the face of that sort of thing is going to come home and have trouble holding the baby. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that gets explored enough in fantasy literature. Mm-hmm. I agree. I, I I appreciate Brandon Sanderson's take on on the effects. And then look at also he's also really giving us a very nuanced, in-depth look at religion here in mm-hmm. the same chapter, uh, as Dalinar goes on to be excommunicated yeah. from mm-hmm. the church. And he's got a, this very already very complicated relationship with the church and how the Alethi society is structured, the 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 ardents there are basically technically slaves to the ruling families. So technically they're supposed to obey him, but now he is going out there and saying that he has had a vision that the almighty is, wasn't God and that, but he still believes that there is a God there. So he ends up being, and we'll, you know, in a later chapter, he kind of goes into that a little bit more, but he gets excommunicated and that being faced with finding out that the thrill is here in Vaidnar. And here is something that he thought he had conquered. He thought he wasn't feeling the thrill anymore because he had grown as a person and he mm-hmm. was becoming a better man. And all of a sudden he realizes that's not true. And here it is. He's faced with it. And then, bam, he gets hit with this conflict, this kind of self-important ardent is coming along just asking to get bitch slapped. <laughs> he basically says, Dalinar, please, bitch slap me right here. <laughs> From Dalinar's perspective. I'm just saying. <laughs> so it's at this point then that he, of course, loses his shit and just begins to kind of run in a circle being like, it flees back to his room and um, there he goes, the blackthorn, <laughs> <laughs> running around like a man with his hair on fire. Oh, the blackthorn! <laughs> and so that's where we leave Dalinar in this chapter. I noted that the thrill followed him when he landed in mm-hmm. Eurythero, which sort of—I don't know if it's contradictory, but uh, the snapter talks about Neragail. Mm-hmm. I'm going to, however you want to pronounce that. Uh, the unmade who they believe is responsible for the thrill. Leading you to believe that it would be sort of geographically centered. But when Dalinar lands in Eurythero, he still has the thrill with him. Right. So either it isn't tied to this unmade or isn't geographically bound. Or once it's sort of inside you, it's going to run its course. Right. Either way is completely valid. Right. Um, But I just, that was something I noted. I took it to be the second of what you said. It makes sense. That it is geographically bound, but once it's it's in your brain, it's hard to dislodge. 
Yeah. Or it kind of maybe sets off like a chain reaction. Yeah, which which would make sense. So Dalinar gets to this sort of point where he's stuck between the booze and the thrill of the fight. And I'm like, man, that is one bizarre country song. <laughs> but but I would listen to it. I would listen the hell out of it. I would listen to it. <laughs> he picks up the way of kings and he's like, I can't read. <laughs> How are those gender norms treating you now, drunkie? <laughs> yeah, right. The thrill drove me to drink. <laughs> That's it. That's all I got. Okay, good. <laughs> Chapter 101 is called Dead Eye. On the ship, Adolin is fussing with his clothes. While whipping up a quick waistcoat, he discusses his possible royal status with the ship's captain, Iko. Adolin and Azure discuss the morality of walking away from leadership as the ship arrives at Celebrant. The gang says goodbye to Iko, collects Adolin's dead eye, and splits up to find supplies and a new ship. I remember Iko. My grandma and his grandma mm-hmm. were sitting by a fire. Yeah. And then my grandma told his grandma, uh-huh. I'm going to set your flag on fire. Yeah. Which was like really insulting because they don't have a lot of textiles in Shadesmar. Right? And, and and no water. I mean very little water. So this is How problematic. Do you put the fire out. It's, it's problematic. For sure. So my first note is Iko says, "But you were a ruler among them. I can read it in you. It's the way you assumed ownership over my clothes." <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, aren't Aren't clothes rare in this area? They're, I mean, it's hard to say. I would say that they're not very useful because most Spren don't use or wear them. So they, they don't seem to be terribly valuable unless a rare human comes. I mean, they're certainly willing to give the clothes to the humans for free. I just thought it was awfully presumptive oh to cut the sleeves off <laughs> to be to be like hey i'm gonna take your cabin and modify all your clothes <laughs> well just remember that the spren don't wear clothes i i mean so for me i'm like damn that was pretty clever <laughs> i mean but it's possible that my feelings about men and vests is coloring my judgment listen there. your adolin uh ap- apologism <laughs> is uh is very strong i don't <laughs> The You're apolog- ready for it. You're the apologetics it. of Adolin are, are are something that I I can't separate from you, and I've I've accepted that. I, I'm just saying, if if Adolin and John Tannen were on two opposite sides of a moral quandary, and only one of them could be considered right, I would my brain would probably explode. I don't know why. <laughs> it's an easy choice. <laughs> John Tannen is twice the character Adolin is, not just in mass. I, I don't know. This is giving me some strong feelings. I think we need to move on. So the first thing that I noted is Iko's attitude towards humans. Basically, he's very matter of fact, like, well, humans eventually are going to betray any trust. I mean, that's just kind of his. In your nature. And then he's like, no offense, yeah. you know. <laughs> but yeah, humans are scum, basically. And we find out that um, Iko's father was a dead eye. In this chapter, I believe. So, yeah. and and I l- really liked his reaction to Adolin kind of t- 
towing his, the corpse of his sword around. And, and he pretty much says to her, to him, don't pretend like she's your friend. Like, like you're literally towing her corpse around, killing people with it. Yeah. You know? But like, we know that Adolin th- has always thought of his sword as being alive somehow. He refused to name his sword when he got it. He always kind of talked to his sword. So it, uh, for me, I just, that, that more than anything else kind of makes me fall in love with his character. I, and I love Kaladin's face when Adolin comes out and he's in like a full, like, tailored yeah. suit. He's like, what the hell? Uh, the other thing I noted before we get to the actual city celebrant is the conversation that Adolin has with... Azure. Azure. Uh, Vivenna. Right. Azure slash Vivenna. Yes. Around, you know, royalty and responsibility. And uh, she says... But of all the things I've walked away from, the one I don't regret is allowing someone else to rule. Sometimes the best way to do your duty is to let someone else, someone more capable, try carrying it. And I put my giant foreshadowing flag mm-hmm. on that sentence mm-hmm. as Adolin is sitting there and contemplating mm-hmm. if he's going to end up becoming king. Right. I like all of the the kind of hints that are thrown. And I know we've already talked about Azure being Vivenna, but mostly because I had already read this part and kind of been like, I think I told, was like, no, she's Vivenna. You were pretty clear about it. I was pretty clear. I'm sorry about that. I feel like at this part, you would have guessed. These are the where- Oh, by now, yeah. The strongest hints are dropped, you know? Yeah. Her hair changing color. And then Adolin says, well, how many royals have you known? And she's like, more than you might assume. And then she's like, I knew a young girl who ran away from leadership and her family. I talk about myself in the third person all the time. (laughs) She talked about uh, being too open with strangers went poorly for her when she was young. Uh, And it did. And it did. It really did. It did indeed. So this is a neat connection for these two characters to have as Adolin is facing the idea of he might be the king like holy crap and he really really does not want to be the king no Mm -mm. so yeah i think that was an important conversation and then we get to celebrant now listen celebrant feels like being stuck inside of a game of super mario yes weird (laughs) things walking around for no reason no context Yes. (laughs) yes just absolute randomness it's like it's like a jodorowsky film I keep waiting for the Harlem Globetrotters to show up. Right. <laughs> Be like, hey, Dalinar, you want your harpoon? Come get it. <laughs> Who's got your harpoon now? Oh, Geese has it. Now he passes it to Sweet Lou. Now he passes it to Wilt Stilt. Now back to Geese. And what is this? Geese has shoved it down his shorts. He's claiming he doesn't have it. Those are some very short shorts, Geese. We can all see the harpoon. <laughs> this part, whole thing in Shadesmar, for me... Kind of like just I love how it cracks the world open like we've now spent, you know, 2500 pages in this very intricately laid out world. And all of a sudden now there's this whole like bananas upside down world under the world that we're it's like, I don't know, I I feel like I, it just feels like walking into an M.C. Escher painting. Yeah, yeah, right. When this whole time you've been like looking at Renaissance paintings, and all of a sudden... Yeah, if M.C. Escher was painted by clowns. Right. So, and I'm I'm absolutely here for it. You know, you you get to... What I like about this 
series especially, I mean, Brandon Sanderson's work, but this series especially, you get to a par- part where you're like, well, where can things go from here? And then all of a sudden, it's like a whole other wing of the house opens up oh, and you're like... He's got another layer. And don't. you're like, oh my gosh. There's no end to the layers. Yeah. So, right. So we explore a Spren city. Yeah. Celebrant and the Spren city sort of occupy a weird space for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, not not in a negative way, but in an uncomfortable way. And, and what I mean by that is this, that it's so alien and bizarre that I feel like I need a lot more explanation for what the hell's going on mm-hmm. to feel like I'm in it, you know, to, to capture the verisimilitude. But we don't need to... Sp- like, we don't need extra exposition to move the story along. Mm-hmm. So it feels just sort of weird and out of place without context and alien, which is sort of fine because that's, I'm sure, how it also feels to them as well. Right. But it also sort of feels very unreal. And like, I have a hard time putting myself in the spot because I don't have a lot of the details in the verisimilitude. I don't feel like I don't feel like I'm I'm really in a real world. I feel like I'm in a a two-dimensional painting and I can only see and there are, you know, gaps in the painting even. It feels very undeveloped. But at the same point in time, I, I wouldn't ask Brandon Sanderson to spend a lot of extra time fleshing this out because it's not necessary right now. Right. I, I suspect that those corners and those blind spots will be filled in later so i so i'm not trying to be critical but as a first-time reader it's just very bizarre feels like walking into the middle of like an avant of a thing that's already Mm avant-garde and then walking out before the ending of it well and you look at the choice that he made to have the the point of view characters that are driving this part of the narrative are Adolin and Kaladin, the two who have the least experience in this realm. Like to them, all of this stuff about the cognitive realm in general is completely foreign. And we're pretty much getting their point of view. Similar to what he did in Kolinar, where he never gave us Adolin's point of view. Yes. Adolin who grew up in Kolinar. Right. Right. So I I feel like it's almost meant to feel like a very alien world. I, I think so as well. You know, and to to really separate the idea of this is not like the physical realm. This is not where these characters are at home. But it also, in a way, it kind of makes their personal crises sort of shine and brings it to the forefront. The last thing I noted here was that, you know, this well, so the characters are faced with a, a decision. Are they going to go to the Shadesmar version of Thalen City to try and track down Dalinar mm-hmm. and use the Oathgate there? Or... Are they going to go to a place called Cultivation's Perpendicularity, which is, I guess, a, a place where the three realms are connected that they could also get back to the physical realm? Nobody wants to go to Cultivation's Perpendicularity. All of the ships are, from what we hear, they're they're not wanting to go there. So they have that decision to make. Um, and also, I noted that when they split up, Syl wanted to go with Shallan rather than stick with Kaladin. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that that was just kind of important, I thought. My only other note is that Iko's daughter, he says, 
my daughter used to work there before she ran off chasing stupid dreams. Oh, yes. So she's out trying to chase this whole radiant thing. His right. father was a radiant. This dude's got no reason to no. like these people. Nope. No reason at all. And then something happens later, gives yeah. him even more reason. <laughs> right. To really not like these people. Yeah. Chapter 102 is called Celebrant. Kaladin, Adolin, and Syl head to the money changers in Celebrant while the rest of the crew looks for a ride. Things go south when they realize that the Voidspren are in charge of the city. The Voidspren set fire to Iko's boat right around the same time that Syl reveals there's a massive bounty on her head. The fused scare off pretty much every ship in the harbor, so Syl hatches a desperate scheme. She surrenders to the Honor Spren, who arrests her immediately. So it all kind of goes down here. It does. There's a lot of things happening. A lot of things. So the first thing I noted is that the different kinds of spren that they see around the city. And again, I just find a little bit of world, world building here because we are through the rabbit hole in Wonderland. I, I that, yeah, yeah. that is very much what it feels like. It feels like when I was a kid and reading, um, you know, through the looking glass and that kind of like very alien world, but kind of scary alien. Yeah. I For me, Wonderland was like a terrifying place. So... Anyway, I find the descriptions of the Spren just really, really spoke to me. So, and and the most important one that I noted is the Spren that looked like Adolin's sword, but they were made with vines with crystal hands, mm-hmm. which reminds me of Wendell. Wendell. Mm-hmm. And that there were equally common Spren with inky black hair, which again reminds me of Yasna Spren Ivory. Ivory. And several times they mentioned Spren with skin like cracked stone and molten light within. And then skin like old ashes that t- tends to disintegrate and then rebuild itself. So, and those are like the dust bringers, right? Yes. Yeah, I think so. So, nothing more there. I just like talking about it. Adolin, of course, noticing a clothing stand and he goes to make sure everyone has clean underwear. Absolutely. It's very important. It's very important. And he gets a skirt for Shalon, which I thought was sweet because she had been talking on the boat about not liking pants. Why would you? Why would you? Listen, we have a very strong stance on pants. Like, <laughs> I, feel, I feel like it's been very clear. You can go back and listen to other episodes. <laughs> Don't need to rehash the whole thing here. I did I did like the whole Shalon. You know, we I have strong feelings about female characters that are like, I would, you know, I would never wear a dress. It's, you know, ugh. And I liked the flip on that where she's like, pants are uncomfortable, man. Yeah, right. Like, I'm not getting enough breeze on my nethers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all... There's very little wind around here. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> it's all chafing. <laughs> it's like, I just, I kind of liked that. So... Oh, and, and Kaladin worrying about, so he they buy some clothes, which, to speak to our earlier conversation about the clothes, were very cheap. Like, they got... All of these sets of clothes for like barely any stormlight. Mm, okay, I so, haven't picked up on the exchange rate yet. So. Yeah, so so mm. clothes are are not terribly valuable in Shadesmar, but then later when they're looking at various building materials, they were saying that the the cheaper they are, the less permanent they are. Ah, <laughs> so. well, there you go. <laughs> I know that Kaladin appreciates the arts. He finds this painting right in the stand and. Uh, this, the the uh, the monger says, "It's a unique piece, human, from f- the far off court of the gods." Ah, so cool! 
a painting intended only for the divinity to see. It is exceptionally rare that one escapes being burned at the court and makes its way into the market. I was there. This one old broad didn't like my paintings. She kept giving me the evil eye. I was like, back off, Karen. You can't tell me what to do. (laughs) I just kept letting the naked women slither around on the twister mat, dumping paint on them. It was very inappropriate. Messy. People kept slipping and falling down. But art is subjective. And if she didn't like it, she could go find another court of the gods. Am I right? (laughs) Am I right? I don't think I am. So this painting is from Halandrin. Yeah. Done by one of the the gods from Warbringer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought that was so cool. And any the the seller mentions that you know. So when Kaladin looks at it, he sees a kneeling figure surrounded by nine shadows. But the seller says, you know, whoever looks at it sees something different. Mm-hmm. So I actually had never made that connection before um, when reading this book, and then this time I did, and I thought that was so cool. It was the, uh, it's exceptionally rare that one escapes being burned at the court. Yeah. That I was like, oh, wait a minute. Yep. And I think too, the, and we haven't really talked about the snapters in this, but they're talking about the unmade. And in the the next chapter, they talk about the, um, the death rattles that are caused by Moloch and that they are, you know, people are given this glimpse of the future as they die. And I was like, well, that's exactly what happens in Halandran too. You know, oh, when yeah, that's true. people die, they cross over, they're given a vision of the future, and then some choose to come back, of course, and then they're reincarnated in this godlike state, which is different from Roshar. But I thought that's that's just another connection there of the transition between the physical and I guess the spiritual realm that they're given a vision of the future. I hadn't put that together. That's a, that's a good observation. So the other gang is trying to find a ship to take them anywhere remotely near the perpendicularity. And not having a lot of success. They also, you know, they fail to realize at first that the Voidspren are in charge of the city, loosely in charge. Some Voidspren made of golden light, some of red shadows, but some of the fused are here in person as well. So long story short, they scare off all of the ships. And um, Syl is left with one more plan. And she runs up, and we find out that not only is there, like, a bounty on her head, not only is she an honor spread, kind of the ruling class, but that she is actually, like, the Lindbergh baby yeah. of the honor spread. <laughs> yeah. So there's a huge reward out for her, her being the first to kind of go over and start, one of the first of the honor spread to go over and start the, doing this not Bond thing again. And uh, she's kind of in deep doo-doo, so... They are able to escape the fuse, but it's unsure yet whether, you know, what the consequences of that are going to be. Well, and when they get put on board the ship, they're being tied up, or she's at least being tied mm-hmm. up. And so we'll see how, you know, they're being searched and their stuff is being taken. So mm-hmm. this this boat ride doesn't seem as friendly, which, given what happened to Ico, seems fair. Right. And I think it's important, too, that the Void Spren seem to be unwilling to attack an entire ship full of Honor Spren. So they're kind of powerful in a way that we probably don't realize. Yeah. Chapter 103 is called Hypocrite. Dalinar wakes up hungover, depressed, and smack dab in a vision about Nohadon. They go shopping. Dalinar lays his problems out. The easiest way to ensure world unity is just to conquer everybody. But he doesn't want to do that. He and the king are followed by thunderclasts, who Dalinar says represent his pain. 
The king tells Dalinar that he has forgotten the most essential part of his journey, and then he wakes up. As he realizes that this is no vision, just a dream, he also has a vivid memory of Gavilar's funeral. Mm. So Dalinar finds himself in what he assumes is a vision because of its its vividness and reality. And he's had a vision with Nohadan in the past, so Indeed. it sort of echoes other things he's experienced in visions. Mm-hmm. But Nohadan is not in this dream as he expected him or as he's seen him before. He's kind of a much older, and he's also this sort of carefree, spry old man that reminds him of Taravangi in a bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, they kind of, he, he has a chance to kind of talk through with his his idol, his ideological idol, mm-hmm. this quandary that he's having. What, what is the right thing to do in a situation where it seems like, you know, doing something wrong is the best thing for everybody? Mm-hmm. Because he's frustrated with trying to get the leaders to follow him. He's frustrated with trying to get, you know, get unity in a peaceful way. He's very tempted to just smash them all down and snatch them up. And, and, and Nohadan says something that I absolutely loved. It's one of my favorite quotes from this section, and I think it's so important. He says, you shouldn't be looking for life to be easier just because you chose to do something that is right. Yeah. And I was like, damn. Yeah, exactly. I felt attacked by that Brandon Sanders. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's just one of the most important statements and themes of this book is that you need to do the right thing because it's the right thing. Not because it's easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For sure. I had a couple of quotes in here. One, I walked the whole way, though I did require some help to reach your Ethereum's caverns. That is no more a cheat than taking a ferry across a river. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, caverns? We've had some mention of there being like caverns down below, right? Huh? Yes. Okay, all right. Because but- when the unmade fled mm-hmm. when Shallan chased off the unmade it escaped into some tunnels yeah and nobody wanted to go after it so yeah and i think we don't really uh, but wasn't there a conversation as well about they left the tower somehow through one of those taverns? I, yeah i think so caverns it's just curious to me to figure out like why would you like why would you need help to get it's still you know all that area around there and why you're a theory, other than just being sort of geographically isolated why it's so impossible to find is still mm-hmm. still very unexplained to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like there's something going on there that I don't really have a grasp of. But anyway, moving on. Uh, the other one that I noted here is Nodon says all things exist in three realms: the physical, mm-hmm. uh, what you are now; the cognitive, what you see yourself as being; uh, the spiritual, the perfect you. And I wrote down. Your inspirational tweets aren't saving anyone, Nohadon. <laughs> it's a it's a good way of explaining the realms, though. Well, what I noted, and the reason why I wrote it down, is the cognitive realm is what you see yourself as being, mm-hmm. which I thought was interesting sort of relative to the characters we have who are now physically in that realm. Right. You know, and I, I, I'm just, I'm having a hard time rectifying that statement with what I've seen of Shadesmar. So I think that he's not talking about when people physically go to Shadesmar, which is very rare and difficult to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But Shadesmar is a realm of ideas. It's basically a realm of 
all of the human thoughts about an object or a force of nature or an inanimate concept become real. And in Roshar, they kind of bleed through a little bit, the physical and the cognitive realm. So it's the the realm of ideas made real. Well, also, I think the other part of it that this points out is that Shadesmar is not the only part of the cognitive realm. Yeah. Because, you know, not, not everybody from every planet necessarily enters the cognitive realm through Shadesmar. At least that's the impression that I have, but I could be wrong. Well, and I think there's a, a place later on, yes, uh, in chapter 105, I'll just um, I'll, I'll just talk about it now, though. The idea of the Arden is speaking at Gavilar's funeral, and she says, spirit, mind, and body, death is the separation of the three. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what the, the three realms are meant to encompass. You know, the idea of mind, spirit, and body, and how they can be separate and go separate places. Yeah. And then uh, my last comment in this chapter is, what is the most important step a man can take? And it's obviously the next, right? I I think so. I mean, it's the next step. And Dalinar's like, the first step? And I'm like, no, it's not the first step. Because anybody can start a thing and abandon it. Mm -hmm. It's not about saying you're going to do something and making some effort, hitting a roadblock and going, ah, well, I'll go home now. It's about continuing to do it. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that it's the next step. And that's so important in where Dalinar is right now. And I just, I love his, I love his journey and this idea that, you know, he falls down, but he learns to get back up again. And we'll, he'll, we'll get more into that in future chapters. But yeah, I I agree with you. Chapter 104 is called Strength. While the Scooby gang is in Shadesmar and Dalinar is losing his shit, Navani Colon is keeping the damn kingdom together. And the kingdom is in deep shit. Political, economic, and mechanical problems plague the tower, but Navani just keeps on shoveling. After meeting with a council of Alethi high princes, Navani visits Yasna. To her surprise, Yasna is collecting information about Renarin and his spren. Mm-hmm. So we see Sabariel's full name. Someone finally calls him by his his first name, which is Turanad. Oh, it's yeah. Just rolls right out of your shithole. <laughs> right. <laughs> and we see Navani doing a creditable job, kind of running things. Absolutely, yeah. But she cannot, there's no way she can explain why, you know, Dalinar, who is the one who brought everyone together and has been pressing and pressing for this to happen, has now locked himself in his room for a week. No, she's put in a rough situation because she doesn't really have the sort of legal authority in this position. And again, as you said, there's this absence of the person with the, quote, legal authority who's not there that she can't, you know, she's got to work around. So Mm -hmm. she can sort of only kind of, you know, keep things trucking along unless she she wants to really upset the apple cart and sort of take over. Which is not what she wants. You know, the last thing that she wants is for people to think that she's the power behind the throne. You know, there are already people saying, well, she married Gavilar and then, you know, he died and now she's on to the next. Like Mm -hmm. that is, that is not what she wants. 
but I love the way that she's willing to support Dalinar, even though he's being, you know, not the man that she married, let's just say at this point. Mm -hmm. And I keep saying this is my favorite quote, but this, (laughs) (laughs) this one is really my favorite quote of the section. It got two stars next to it in Mm, my notes. There you go. She thinks, but she had learned that nobody was strong all the time, not even Dalinar Colon. Love wasn't about being right or wrong, but about standing up and helping when your partner's back was bowed. And I, I just love that. I really do. It's good. And this is just a very real relationship for me. Mm -hmm. And I like that Brandon Sanderson is not afraid to let his characters just fall back into old things and, and get up and fall down. And, and he's not so worried about the narrative that he's not willing to kind of take the risk and do that. No, that's true. That's absolutely a credit to him for sure. So what do we think about Yasna collecting info on Renarin when she is supposed to be translating all these gems? Um, but instead, this seems to be more important to her. Uh, you know, I, she's definitely preoccupied with, I don't know, preoccupied is not the right word, but she's definitely very curious about what's going on with Renarin. And if she was of the Voran persuasion, you would think it would be because she'd be worried about his potential propensity to be able to tell the future. Right. But that's not really a concern of yes, at least not any of the religious angle. Right. But she does seem to be concerned with his abilities. I don't really don't really know what to say about it. I mean, it could just be a certain degree of academic curiosity and that she right. just wants to define what's going on uh, with her cousin, you know. Right. Hard, hard to say. It but is hard to say. It's I think hard it's to important say. at this point, though. Yeah. The um, the idea that Renarin wrote the glyphs on Dalinar's wall, mm-hmm. like I read through that line and I was like, didn't we already know this? We did, yes. Okay, all right, okay. Because I didn't, I didn't feel that like, aha, you right. know, sort of moment. No, we knew that, but... I think Yasna is just putting everything together. Okay. So he's had a vision of the future. He wrote the glyphs and then she's trying to just trying to gather information on what are his powers exactly, because he's been very vague about it. When he, when asked what he can do, he says, I see things, you know, and he, he's not good at communicating. Exactly. Um, But I thought it, I just, I thought it was worthy of note that, you know, Navani's like, maybe we, we should encourage Renarin to get out a little bit. And Yasna's like, mm, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> maybe we should just keep him here. We don't really know what his powers are. And she made a connection between Renarin's spren and the one that is tied to the radiant that Lyft saved in mm-hmm. Azimir, the stump. Yeah. So yeah, she's yeah. trying mm-hmm. to trying to get information about what he can do and stuff. I mean, could it simply be as much as this is her this is her cousin. He doesn't seem to be able to really articulate what's going on with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, or and maybe she's concerned that he doesn't really fully understand what's going on with him, mm-hmm. and she just wants to help and know. Certainly possible. The new recruits might get bored by guard duty, but she'll never find a veteran complaining about a nice, quiet afternoon full of not being stabbed. Right. <laughs> that part was good. <laughs> that was my that's my quote of the yeah. of the episode so far 
So. Yeah, that part was good. I am such a huge fan of Bridge Four. Yep. Th- though I-, I didn't like them before they got popular, back when it was all about the bridges. Right. <laughs> oh, one other thing that I noted was um, Navani mentions that Teft had been hauled in front of the magistrate again on oh, yeah. public intoxication. So that's a little sad. We haven't seen a whole lot of Teft in this book, but he's not... Not in a great He's spot. He's not doing too good. Poor Liam Cunningham. <laughs> right, that's your that's your Teft cast. I can go with that. So solidly Teft. I could go I with mean. that. Chapter 105 is called Spirit, Mind, and Body. Dalinar remembers Gavilar's funeral. Not his best day, but at least he was sober. Ever since the incident with Little Renarin, Dalinar has been trying to control his drinking with varying levels of success. After the funeral, he heads for his stash, but he's distracted by Yasna reading The Way of Kings. He's mesmerized by the book, and eight hours later, he makes a decision. He needs a journey, just like Nohadan, and the first stop in his will be to visit the old magic. So we see kind of Dalinar's flashbacks coming almost full circle, getting to the place where we knew him, and he makes a decision that he wants to go get his memories removed. I loved the poem that Navani wrote, mm-hmm. and I love the idea of a ketek. I like. I, I think people should write more of them. Not me. I'm not good at writing poems, but um, I, I just think it's pretty cool. The idea of kind of a palindromic poem. That is cool. And uh, when he when Dalinar is standing at the funeral, then he thinks um, it's over. I'm never going to have a chance to live up to his expectations. I thought that was so sad. Mm. I wrote down this quote. About from the uh, the way of kings, uh, those words came to me from a man. His eyes said that he could see the future, but his name tag said Barnes and Noble. <laughs> the voice said, echoing in the hallway, feminine, familiar. How is this possible? I asked in return. Have you been touched by the void? The reply was laughter. No, sweet king. The past is the future, and each man has lived. And as each man has lived, so much you. So I can but repeat what has been done before. Some things, yes. You will love, you will hurt, you will dream, and you will die. Each man's past is your future. Then what is the point, I asked. If all has been seen and done, your question, she replied, is not whether you will love or hurt or dream or die. It is what you will love, why you will hurt, when you will dream, and how you will die. This is your choice. You cannot pick the destination, only the path. I mean, I that, love that quote too. I mean, that's the quote of the whole series. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It ju- that just encompasses what it's all about, and we see every character in some version of that of that choice and that dilemma. It gives me little chills. <laughs> also, Yasna reads aloud for eight. Hours. Oh, that's rough, man. Oh my gosh. Three quarters of the way through Richard Scarry's trucks and cars and things that go. <laughs> I'm dead. I'm literally dead. It is exhausting. That's a long book. Though it was better when you could, and I, I guess Yasna can as well, just start improvising. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Just skip. I wonder if Yasna was skipping. Oh, Jesus. You grab about eight pages at a time. <laughs> so true. <laughs> hope they don't hope they're not savvy enough to be like wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute we forgot about the pickle truck that's my favorite page pickle truck. 
Man, I got good at reading that book. I got good at reading that I book. I knew where too. I could skip ahead and where oh, I couldn't. Yeah. And I always read the asphalt page. Though. You have to, well, for your own sake. <laughs> Cars and trucks and things that go on episode 115. <laughs> right. the two Chapter 106 is called Law is Light. Nin takes Seth and the Skybreakers south to the kingdom of Marat. They visit a town that has been overrun by the fused, most of its inhabitants dragged off into slavery. Nin asks Seth if justice happened here, but seems to know more than he is telling about the situation. Nin tells Seth that he will be the first of a new order of skybreakers and the first to swear the oaths in a world where the herald of justice has failed. As if that sentiment wasn't cheery enough, he opens up about what really happened during the last battle against the Voidbringers. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. He opens Hurry up, Etienne. but he doesn't let anything out. <laughs> well, not to us, not on camera. He's like, and then there's this time that me and my friends, yeah. we decided to abandon our other friend to eternal torment. You know. <laughs> we were sick of his shit. <laughs> Freshman. <laughs> so also, Seth and the Skybreakers, that's my new band name. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's a good one. What kind of what kind of music are are Seth and the Skybringers bring into uh, uh, Baltimore? Ska. It's obviously a ska band. Ska band. <laughs> All right, I was not where I was. Don't ag- even have to think about that very That's hard. not where I was expecting <laughs> you to go. All right. Be skanking with your uh, with your big boots. Exactly. So, and I love Nightblood here. Oh yeah, as always. He's like, you should draw your sword. You, you should, should draw me. <laughs> and Seth is so like formal and respectful. And he's like, and do what sword to me? He's like, you should fight him. I think he might be evil. Yeah. And, and then I love Seth's response. He's one of the heralds, one of the least evil things in the world. Huh. Doesn't bode well for your world then. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, Nightblood is the Burn. best. Is the best part of two series. Absolutely. Right? I th- Absolutely. I think I'm picking up on a brand or formula here. You take your mopiest character in the book, mm-hmm. you give him a silly, bloodthirsty monster sword. <laughs> it's, it's like taking Jerry Lee Lewis and Ted Bundy and putting him in a tiny apartment. I Voila! Mean, what? Just watch the magic happen. I mean, why mess with that formula? It's a good one. I'm not it criticizing. Works. I'm not I'm not here to <laughs> not here to knock it. So we find out here and I don't re- I couldn't remember if it's been laid out before, but that Seth's people were the ones that were holding all of the sharp blades. Yeah, it had, yeah, it had been the okay. honor blades. The, the honor, honor blades. blades. Yeah. Yes. It had been, it had been mentioned before. Yeah, that was a note that I had as well. It says he stopped at the top of the steps, looked down at his hand where a glistening sharp blade appeared, one of the two missing honor blades. Seth's people had care of eight. Once long ago, it had been nine. Then this one vanished. And so I had to ask, does that mean did Nin steal this one? Yeah, I think so. Because all nine of them put their swords in a circle in the ground. In the very first prologue of Way of Kings, they put their swords in the ground. They walked away. When we see Nail again, when he's going around killing Radiance, he's got his shard blade. So obviously he walked away and then changed his mind, um, probably because Ishar told him 
that if the radiance returned, it would bring another de- desolation. So he went out and decided to refound the skybreakers in order to stop that from happening. So uh, let's have a little bit of conversation about that real quick, because on one hand, I guess he can't really steal it. It was his to begin with. Yeah. So I guess it's not violating his own sort of, you know, precepts by taking his own sword. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it did cross my mind there for a second. I'm like, I got you. Aha. Aha right. You yeah, liar. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wait a minute. You already own that. The other so the other part of it is did Nin sort of inadvertently help this all to happen because he became a radiant himself? Did mm. he open the door for all of this because he became the head of his own order of radiance? Mm, I mean, do they have spren? He doesn't have a spren because he doesn't need one, but he's had all these other radiants and and they bond spren. And he's sworn the ideals. And others have sworn the ideals for years. I think that is a very good point. And I think it's the the point of this chapter and the the conversation with Seth, where Seth kind of calls him out on being a hypocrite. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and 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 Nin is very adamant that he skated the line. I got, I followed the laws of the land, but he also seems to be pushing Seth into wanting to become more than he has become. And I think his experience with Lift and Edge Dancer and realizing that that Ishar led him astray and that he was wrong in doing what he did, mm-hmm. he's trying to come to terms with that. We still don't know what it means to swear the fifth ideal and become the law. Mm-hmm. Sarcastic air quotes. Yeah. Sorry, I just think that sounds I like bullshit. To, that sounds like bullshit to me. <laughs> Any character who says "I am the law" and you know that's the bad guy, unless his name is Bam Bam Bigelow. Okay. In which case, <laughs> keep on trucking, big man. <laughs> Obviously, that's the exception. We, we'll make an exception for Bam Bam Bigelow. All right. <laughs> Obviously. I just need that noted <laughs> in podcast lore. <laughs> but yeah, I think that this is such a, a kind of an, I love the nuance of this situation and and Nin's morality and how he has coped with, you know, being alive for thousands of years and uh, now kind of facing his own mistakes. And really it kind of ties into what we were talking about before with Taravangian and Dalinar and the differences in how they are willing to admit that they were wrong and face their mistakes and move on from them. Yeah. The other thing that leads me to believe and, and that I want to talk about is the idea that all the honor blades are being held by the Shin and Shinovar. Mm-hmm. And, you know, other than Seth and a handful, like we know very little about Shinovar. Right. Did the swords, were the swords sort of left there or did the Shin grab them and take them there? I guess what I'm trying to get at is we see that there appear to be more Shin in Shadesmar. Say that 10 times fast. And cultivation seems to Mm -hmm. live in Shinovar. Mm Mm-hmm. It's the only place on the planet that's not absolutely covered in creme. Mm-hmm. There's definitely something very, very significant going on there. I sort of feel like, are they closer to the spiritual? Is there another perpendicularity somewhere in uh, Shinovar that we don't know about? Is There's something going on with, Sh- with Shinovar that they are not telling us about. 
Well, that is definitely true. I will just point out that in one of the visions, Dalinar sees the Ten Swords left behind and he sees a Shin man discovering them. So mm-hmm. I took that to mean this the Shin were the first to discover the swords and they took them for safekeeping. But my question is, did they take them or did they build a temple around them? Oh, I, I'm not sure. I don't think we know. But yeah. I don't think we know. But but I think that that's how and why the Shin were holding on to them. I sort of wonder if the Shin have sort of a, like their perspective, their culture, their religion is the one that's the closest to the truth and all this Voronism is mm. bullshit. And that's part of the reason why you know they end up more often in Shadesmar. They're the ones who end up holding on to you know, to the sword, like, well, I think you know, the, is there the, some honor being bestowed upon them from the spiritual realm because of who they are and what they hold to? The differences between the Shin and the rest of Roshar are very significant. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as as far as the, the geography of their land being very different and their taboos against violence, mm-hmm. um, their taboos against lying, it, it's, it's all very significant. Um, well, and... and you know, I think it also speaks to the idea that this is a polytheistic world with mm-hmm. multiple gods. You know, clearly there's some power in the Radiance, and the Radiance are, at least part of them, militant in their nature. So it's not as though God doesn't honor, you know, martial powers at all, mm-hmm. or, or at least some god, or some portion of mm-hmm. god, or something. But it does seem to be that the Shin are more revered or closer to the truth. Mm-hmm. My last note in this chapter is when Nin's going on and on about the concept of mercy mm. and the idea of, well, you know, mercy and and law are at opposite ends of each other, and the law is there to protect us from our native sentimentality. Mm. I just want to, for the record, say that's bullshit. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the straw boogeyman. Yeah. Like, this idea that if we have mercy for somebody who has done something wrong, then they'll come back and betray us and create, you know, even greater chaos and people will lose their lives. I think that's a straw man argument. I think it's a boogeyman that people use uh, to justify doing things that are in and of themselves wrong things. Yeah. Everybody deserves a second chance, Liz. <laughs> Everybody. 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 I I am with you 100%, and I think that's um, one of the most important things that's being said in this chapter. My last note is this quote here. Nin kind of opens up saying, uh, is what happened here justice? And Seth is like, uh, no, it looks like the slaughter of innocent people. And then Nin is kind of like, well, what if this happened? And what if that happened? And and Seth says, well, that did not happen here. You said this was caused by an invading army. And Nin says, yes, this is the fault of invaders. That is true. Would you like to expand upon it? No. <laughs> Just put a pin in it. Uh-huh. Chapter 107 is called The First Step. Dalinar wakes up from his strange vision slash dream slash memory thingy, finally ready to leave his room. He accompanies Taravangian to a meeting of the monarchs, where he is rightfully reamed out. 
He makes a bold proposition regarding the enemy's next steps, and the others scramble to change their battle plans. Next, Dalinar visits Kadash and tries to release him and all the other Ardents from his service, but they refuse. Taravangian meets with his people and hatches a scheme to destroy Dalinar. <laughs> so the first note I had was that I loved, again, Navani and Dalinar's relationship here and that she didn't... Um, he notes that she didn't try and control his drinking. She didn't try and stop the servants from bringing him wine. She just kind of let him have his space and not that that's necessarily the right thing to do with a relapsing alcoholic but mm-hmm. but I I do love like the trust that was in their relationship and the fact that he is then on his own choosing to she kind of accepted that there's nothing she could really do about it. He's having a mid 50s crisis uh, or something. <laughs> Whatever age <laughs> He's they are. So his wild oats. So listen, he wakes up from a night of drunken partying. He's 57 years old. No bottle of smart water, no Advil, no fucking hangover. This is, this is fiction. This is fucking <laughs> fiction, man. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he was hungover. So Dalinar's like, look, man, I, I did some things. <laughs> I I stuck rem- you in a hole. I don't remember all of it, but <laughs> I feel very dirty. <laughs> and Stormfather's like, hey, man, this is the lot I've chosen. It's you or Oblivion. This is what happens when you keep voting for the lesser of two evils, right? (laughs) This is the lot I have chosen. It's you or Oblivion. Two-party systems, am I right? I don't know which You are skirting dangerously close to our no politics rule. (laughs) I just love it. It's like... Living on the edge. I, I, I love the Stormfather here. He's like... He's like, he's not like, it's okay, nah. you know. Oh, we all do some things, you mm-hmm. know. You were drunk, you know. It's like, he's like, listen, like, this, this is my lot in life. I, I made the choice. Fuck you. What can I say? Like, <laughs> like, yeah. He's not trying to sugarcoat it. <laughs> I do like that Dalinar walks into the room and apologizes and basically just goes around this entire chapter being like, and not making excuses, but just being like, hey, man, what I did was messed up. I'm sorry. You know? Mm-hmm. And that's not something that we see. All, all of these, we never see Taravangian apologize for anything. No. You know? It's not the Alethi way. It, you know, even Nin in his whole like, yeah, I realize I might have been wrong by mass murdering every emerging radiant ticket. <laughs> he never says that he's sorry about it. You know? Oh, no. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I thought that was important. And then he's like, I'm sorry. Oh, also, all your battle plans are bullshit. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Everything that we just spent months and excruciating time and planning, just throw that shit out the window. (laughs) I'm back and we're doing shit my way. The Blackthorn, excuse me, the Blackthorn has spoken. (laughs) Somebody, Somebody turn the lights off in here. But he also realizes that the, you know, the fused are not going to attack where they think they're going to attack. And he realizes that they're going to be going to Thalen City, which is now makes sense where where Kaladin saw the vision of Dalinar there. Yeah. So we're like, okay, so they're going to, it's going to come together. Yeah, that sort of, that sort of made that whole like, you know, there was like two pages of him going, but where, 
but where would they go? Where would be the right place? And I'm like, it's Thalen City, man. <laughs> Callan had told us like five chapters ago. <laughs> Get your shit together. Do you want to keep being in this book club or not? <laughs> Spots are limited. <laughs> oh, it's true. It's so true. So he figures it out, though, and then yeah. continues his his apology tour, heading next down to the Ardents, being like, I'm sorry I said your higher power was dead in a fiction. <laughs> Well, we, I mean, it's true, but I'm sorry that you don't like that I yeah. said it. I'm sorry that the, that you were upset by the things I said. <laughs> I'm sorry that you feel insulted by my obviously correct assertions. <laughs> <laughs> but I like what ends up happening here is that Dalinar, I mean, he does start to try and convince Kadash that he's right and that, hey, just because the Almighty isn't God doesn't mean there isn't a God and there might. And Kadash is like, no, 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 no. Yeah. Like, like you've put me through enough. You know, Kadash was one that was there yeah, and yeah, right. instrumental in murdering every single person in Rathalas. Like, mm. he's got his own demons. Yeah. He's like, you he's shut like, up now. Uh, You're done. <laughs> <laughs> zip it. Zip it. <laughs> um, and, but Dalinar allows that and he's like okay and he's like uh, but Kadash doesn't let him just walk away he's like your people still need us yeah. you know uh, he, so he says so here's what you're going to say you're going to say I don't believe what you believe but I still support you and I was like wow that's such an important thing yeah absolutely such an important thing but can we go back to the idea of them moving to Thalen City yes once more? I'm sorry go ahead so what it's a it's a nitpick. All right, pick the nit. It's a nitpick, but I sort of feel like it would have been better if the idea had come from somebody other than Dalinar. It's like it's like Dalinar is the only one in the room smart enough to see it. I mean, but he kind of is. But why? I don't think that's the way things work. Well, I'll I will allow you to have that nit. It's not really pick that important. Away. For me, it did not it, it for me, it tracked. Dalinar is a a military genius. But it's not if if the reason why he saw it was because of information that he had because of his bond with the Stormfather or the visions or something like that, then I would say, oh, okay. It makes sense that Dalinar would be the only person to see it. But that's not what happened here. Except that I, I think why Dalinar saw it was because he kind of thought about what it was that he would do. And the fact that he wouldn't attack an enemy on terrain that was so familiar to them. But why wouldn't every, all the other generals, people in the room have the same experience, though? Uh, see, I, I don't know. I think that, that Dal the Alethi are the uncontested kings of warfare um you know you have the the azish who are smart and capable but mostly come at things from an academic standpoint well, their generals are not in the battlefield and they're not from this geography so, so exactly so that makes sense. um you have the 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 leaders from vadenar who are so still reeling from their own civil war that they can't get their brains around out of their own territory you know, and then you have um, 
Queen Fen, who is not from the area at all. It just, it, I would have liked it better. I mean, this is the tiniest of nits. I would have liked it better if it came from somebody else, from Sabariel or Iali or somebody saying, you're looking at this wrong. Like, I would have appreciated it more. I, you know, I will allow you that knit. I can't, I can't really speak to it any more than I have. It, for me, it, it tracked. So I have one other, uh, one other comment about uh, Iali since we brought up Iali. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was, I'm going to go out and I'm going to, I'm going to say it now. Iali was right. Yasna's being a bitch. Yeah, she was kind of being a bitch. However, I appreciated Yasna. So Iali has been trying to undermine the Colons every step she could possibly take. And well, they killed her husband. She doesn't know that for sure. I mean, yes, they did. And but to I be fair... I don't know that I agree with that statement, but go ahead. Uh, to be fair, she has tried to assassinate all of them many times before this. I mean, water under the bridge. Just saying. <laughs> assassination attempt. The only difference is that the Colons were successful in their, in their attempt. When we first meet Iale, she is offering to set it. I'll get my assassins on it, honey. Yeah. You know, so I I don't feel sorry for her. What a sentence. (laughs) However, what I appreciated was, you know, Iale is, has constantly kind of been a thorn in Navani and undermining her. And Yasna kind of effortlessly sweeps that bullshit away by just sheer aggression. You know, she doesn't come in and play with the, try, try and play with the kind of polite, um, political speak dance. She just comes in and is like, yeah, fuck you, Iali. <laughs> you know, and she kind of, she kind of just, so I appreciate the way that Yasna comes in and just kind of, handles situations in a way that brings the focus back on what's most important. I'm team Iali. Oh, no. I don't know if I'm okay with that. Oh, one uh, important thing that we haven't talked about is on before we get into uh, the the conversations that Teravangian is having with his people is Dalinar talks to the Stormfather about possibly bringing one of the Parshendi leaders into a vision. Mm, They've had to stop at this point trying to bring humans into visions because Odium is able to get to them in that way. But he he kind of asked, is there anyone among the Parshendi that's a leader that we could bring in for me to talk to? So that's a very intriguing thought. So then we move on to Teravangian, who, again, at this day is intelligent enough to kind of realizes that the things that he has done are terrible, but not so intelligent that he doesn't care. He's crying. He's upset because he knows that he's has to destroy Dalinar according to the diagram, mm-hmm. but that Dalinar has proven that he's a good man. However, this does not stop him from um, his plans to open up a, a new expansion of his murder hospital in the Horn Eater Peaks. Yeah. Or to deliberately attempt to, to destroy him anyway. I mean, it doesn't stop him from doing anything. I had a couple comments about that conversation. The first is he's talking with um, Malata about her spren. Yes. And implying that the Dustbringer spren isn't going to like her job. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm like, I just don't know anything about these spren and like in these order. Like it just makes me realize how ignorant I am of it because I'm like, why? It seems to me like, like stirring up shit is what the Dustbringers do. So why would this be counter 
to it. Well, I think that's what we find out here. Taravangian assumes that any spren is going to have problems with kind of acting against the radiant order. Mm -hmm. And he's like, hey, make sure, you know, you're a radiant, make sure your spren, and he's concerned because Malata's spren is young, and he's concerned that as she becomes more self-aware that she might begin to have qualms against working against the radiance. And that's when Malata is able to set him straight that like, no, no, you don't realize all these other Sprint are idiots. And I like the idea that she calls them frozen mm. as, as kind of a way of saying that someone's stupid. She's like, they're all frozen. They think that they just assume that, that all the Sprint are going to be on their side when mm. okay. they're not. So it's more about highlighting Cherovangian's ignorance right. of the orders. Okay, that makes sense. Well, and as a way of speaking to our ignorance, because we don't know anything about the Dustbringers yeah. other than a kind of vague, kind of threatening thing said about them in one of the the previous Snapters about the Dustbringers not having a great reputation. Yeah. Um, but we find out that um, I think the the Ash Spren probably really don't like the Honor Spren because even before the Recreants kind of the worship of honor was responsible for the dust spread ash spren being killed mm. and then during the recreants then of course lots of them were killed mm-hmm. and the ash spren are not like bygones be bygones let's try this again they're out for vengeance but then essentially the plan is sort of summarized in this sentence have her write a scathing anonymous essay then leak it to tashik leak the translations from the dawn chant the same day i want it all to strike at once so essentially, it's trying to sow conflict amongst all the leaders to keep them from coming together and putting all the blame on Dalinar in some way is what is the plan. That's yes. the plan. Okay. Yes. Not that he's going to assassinate Dalinar, but that they're going to incite so much unrest that somebody else is going to attempt to assassinate Dalinar. Or, yeah, or destroy his alliance in some way. Good stuff. Good stuff. That's our coverage. Absolutely. Are you ready to talk about some listener interactions? Yes, I am. So a couple of interactions from Twitter. The first is uh, Kayla Mason, who's at KMay underscore Renee. Liz from the Duke and Duchess podcast. And I just said, fuck and Dana at the same time. <laughs> and folks, amazing. I think I'm in love. <laughs> That's the best thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and Ryan Fenrick at Fenny and the Jets on Twitter says... Favorite football, baseball, and basketball team, go. Oh, something with a bird on it. Uh, <laughs> you're joking, but you are an avid footballer fan. S- s- yes. So uh, when I-, I used to be into all kinds of sports, although I've never really been a fan of baseball, other than when I was a little kid. I really liked baseball when I was, was little. Right. I've always been a big uh, football fan. But when Liz and I got married, I was like, oh, "This is a good story." I was like, "Got to keep it to one sport. Just don't want to have a don't want my wife to be a sports widow. So I'm just gonna just gonna only watch football." And we got married in August with the idea that we would not have a television. We moved into our first apartment, no television. Oh, I remember. They don't tell people that. They're going to think we're pricks. <laughs> well, just, we were kind of pricks back it, just then. Just accept it. It was a long time ago. <laughs> we're just a different kind of prick now. Um, that lasted for like three weeks until, <laughs> <laughs> until the first weekend in September. 
And the first week of the NFL kicked off, and I was like, ah, somehow, some way, we're finding, <laughs> finding a way to watch football. Um, but we have to tell them about your team switch. <laughs> because when we I don't mar- have that kind of time, when I married you, you were a Redskins fan, and you still like the Redskins. But every year, you and my dad, who is a Ravens fan, because we live in Baltimore, would have you know this kind of bet, and uh, whoever's team had a better record or who had a worse record would have to wear the opposing team's journey. A jersey mm-hmm. thing and take a sad face picture while the other one gave a thumbs up in a picture. It yeah, was yeah, yeah. it was kind of a thing, and I think you got really tired of wearing that jersey. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> eventually said you were, and now you cheer for the Ravens. Yeah, now I'm a, now I'm a Ravens fan. So, <laughs> to be fair, for my fan cred, uh, I just wanted to go on the record. Okay, <laughs> I didn't think that would be too upsetting. That that w- we did win a couple of years. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like two out of eight. <laughs> um, but also, uh, when Joe Gibbs retired the second time right. and Sean Taylor died. Oh, yes. Was when I couldn't, I just couldn't root. You were very, that was Redskins very upsetting. Anymore. Yeah, he was my favorite. Uh, football player that was very upsetting so yeah i just couldn't bring myself to root for them anymore like Mm -hmm. it was the that year the next year i just basically lost interest in football yeah i remember that and then in that year your dad brought me to a ravens game and i was like i was like these guys do it so much better than the redskins (laughs) it's just a trash organization Anyway, this has been football with this the Duke and Duchess. But now now and I also want to say, you know, we we ask about other sports, but really your main sport is darts. That's true. So you can who's your favorite darts player? Oh, it's um Peter Snakebite, right? Obviously. Uh, obviously. Current obviously. world champion. <laughs> he's he's abs- I, I like the Scots, man. It's, it's all about <laughs> Gary Anderson and Peter Snakebite, right? I I mean, I like the Dutch. I mean, you know, I'm just saying it's I mean, they you know, it's hard. It's hard to argue with. There's a lot of championships between Van Gerwen and Van Barneveld. Plus, they have the biggest penises in the world. Don't ask him how he knows that, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Just saying it's true. (laughs) Let's 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 get out of this. Okay, on the Facebook group page, uh, Alex Borica says, Chad, knowing what you know now, what advice do you have for someone at the beginning of Way of Kings? I'm listening to the audiobook with my husband in much the same way Liz is going through it with you and desperately want him to stick it out to see the Sanderlanch. I think my advice would be read it quickly and get to the Sanderlanch. I think these books are designed to be read fairly quickly Mm -hmm. you know it's not that there aren't nuggets or things that you can exploit by reading slowly and more carefully and rereading there are but that's not really the point of them it's you know the the chief advantage that brandon sanderson has is he has really cool world building compelling themes but more than anything the sanderlanch right Mm -hmm. so i would just say read quickly get to the sanderlanch so one of the I know sometimes I sound critical about Brandon Sanderson's writing, and it really isn't uh, that I'm critical of his writing per se. He's not my favorite author, but he's he writes a damn good book. But we take such a slow plod through the material that I don't think 
it was intended to be read that way. So I would say read it quickly. Yeah, that's good advice. Eric Ross says, regarding Azure's sword, uh, do you think she was attempting to recreate the process that made Nightblood? Did she use breath or stormlight? Is it the reason that she and Vasher aren't hanging out anymore? I feel like she understood. Didn't he explain to her what happened to Nightblood? Yes. So I feel like she would not attempt to use that same method. I don't know. I, I feel like she may have been trying to um, perfect what happened with Nightblood or have some kind of awakened object, but in a way that the object was not completely insane. So maybe she was trying to uh, recreate Nightblood using Stormlight hmm. instead of Breath. That could be. There's more that Brandon Sanderson has said about this, so let's try and come back to it. Like, I'm hoping we can do sort of a wrap-up at the end. Okay. All right, good. So we, yeah, will, yeah. Get, we will get back to the the ties between Breath and Stormlight and Halandrin and, and um, Roshar at a later date. Sounds good. Sounds like a plan. Zach Sokol says, Hey, Chad and Liz, I've been trying to get into Dune but having a hard time. Any advice you can give to make the reading more enjoyable? Keep staying healthy and list-makey. Dune is the Jimi Hendrix of <laughs> science fiction. Yes, I love that. <laughs> so here's where I come at that from. That Jimi Hendrix is a musical genius. But I listen to Jimi Hendrix as somebody who's a guitar player. I listen to Jimi Hendrix after I had spent years listening to all of the people who had absorbed his style, taken mm. it, expanded on it. Mm -hmm. So by the time I got around to actually listening to Jimi Hendrix, there wasn't anything special about it to me. I, I respected it. It was all right. I did not like it, but I didn't have this sort of um, adoration and worship of Jimi Hendrix that, frankly, was due. So like, I'm just not a big fan of Hendrix or Clapton or a lot of those guys who are sort of the pillars of like, you know, guitar playing gods because eh, everybody else had kind of already been there, done that and taken it somewhere. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very much what's happened with Dune is that Dune, when it came out, was just absolutely monumental mm -hmm. in the landscape of science fiction. You're following up on, it's not that other guys weren't writing good science fiction that had the depth but, like, you're coming off of, like, you know, Zelazny and Asimov, who were, like, more of this, like, classical mm -hmm. uh, science fiction uh, to this, to Dune, which is a, a pretty significant departure from that. And so many other things are built upon that. You know, we'll talk about, what's that series that, that you love that's on TV that I just bought a million books for? Oh, The Expanse. So I look at series like The Expanse and Star Wars were, you know, a lot of Star Wars is damn near directly ripped off of Dune, you know, and a lot of other series have been as well. So I think you're probably suffering from the same thing, that you go back and you read Dune after you've read everything else that's been that's taken that and expanded upon it and saying, eh, it's okay. Mm -hmm. You know, it's nothing special, but it's okay. So I would say, you know, embrace that. It's okay. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people have taken what... um what Frank Herbert did and expanded on it and made it into better books. There, it, it, it reminds me a lot of also Lord of the Rings and mm -hmm. that like, I love Lord of the Rings. It's a great book, but if I compare it to like George R. R. Martin, George R. R. Martin's 
writes better books. He just does. Or more enjoyable for a contemporary audience. Well, yeah, I, if you want to, you know, pussyfoot about it. I do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just... You know, but, uh, but people have been able to take what they've done and found ways to make it more narratively appealing. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. You don't have to read Dune. It's still one of my favorite books, but it's it's in the in the way that I can recognize its warts. Like, right. it doesn't have an ending. Yeah. Like, if you go all the way through the Book of Dune and you're, like, waiting in that last 50 pages for, like, the awesome ending that's going to happen, it ain't going to happen. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't happen for th- three more books. Right. <laughs> like, like, you don't, it, it's not a great narrative. It, it, well, without spoilers, it doesn't end like the movie. Oh, yeah. They were, they were on some strong salvia when they wrote that <laughs> script. I don't know, man. That's so true. But I think it's, you know, they were, they were trying to actually write an ending to a book that doesn't have an, <laughs> an ending. ending. <laughs> so you got to, you know, cut him some slack, man. Uh-huh. Patrick Lee says, I've been following along with your Way of Kings reread, and I want to thank you so much for the entertainment you provide. I find myself rushing through chapters just to get to the next episode. Huzzah! Noise. I like it. Brian McClure says, what was up with a strange vision in chapter 103? Was it odium, another shard, or something even bigger? I have a prediction about it, so we will move on. All right. Uh, He also says, we met lots of new spren types this section. What is your favorite, and what do you think is connected to which order? Uh, I mean, I I think we talk about the viney things and the the ash spren. The ash Mm -hmm. spren are the ones that I found were the most interesting. Yeah. um, Because I've... I feel like that's going to be plot relevant in the future. Um, it's such an interesting visual, kind of creepy visual of their like their skin disintegrating, and you can see their bones underneath, and then it kind of regrows. And yeah, that just made me like, ooh, yeah. It's it's so bizarre, uh, celebrant that it's mm-hmm. like it's kind of like bizarre porn. <laughs> like yeah. Yeah, I'm still... It does. It reminds me of reading Lewis Carroll. I had the same uneasy feeling. Yeah. At, at like, like, how is this a kid's book yeah, kind have, of thing. I haven't come to grips with it fully yet. Yeah. Ask me in, ask me in a couple months. Uh, Brian McClure also asked what our favorite quote is. I think we both, we both kind of answered that in the episode. Uh, mine is the one with Navani talking about holding up your partner when their back is bowed. Uh, and mine is the one about uh, choosing the path as opposed to the destination. Mm-hmm. Um, Brian McClure and and also Ian um, James Crone and and a bunch of people have reached out to us to ask us mm-hmm. how we're holding up in all of this. Um, and we're good. We are we are here. Um, I know we had a lot of people saying, "Hey, are you going to be making a lot of podcasts now that you're stuck in your house?" And I I wish that was our reality, uh, but. <laughs> But the Duke here um, works in IT. It's actually kind of been a crazy time for him. Yeah, I've actually been uh, busier than usual from a work perspective um, as a result of of all of this. And add to that, now we're homeschooling four children. Yes, So too. So yeah, it's been a little bit crazy. I mean, in comparison to what a lot of other people are dealing with, we got it quite easy. So I don't, Absolutely. I don't want to complain. But it's definitely, it's definitely not the... Um, I'm not experiencing the corona boredom yes. that a lot of other people 
are experiencing. Yeah, we're not having that, but we are all healthy. Everyone we know is healthy and and yeah. very grateful for that. And we think a lot about, this is going to sound so, I don't know how this is going to sound, but we think about you guys a lot. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Especially those of you guys who are, you know, um, in different areas of the U.S. or not in the U.S. We, we think about you guys a lot and hope you're okay. So um, reach out to us on on the Twitters and the Facebooks and, and, you know, let us know how you all are getting on. Eric Hallgeier says, I'm going to cut to the chase. In the event of a food shortage, have you decided which child you're going to eat first and why or why not? (laughs) So listen, the kids, we've had a lot more time with the kids recently and they, (laughs) they keep coming up to me and they're like, they're like, daddy, tell us who your favorite is. And I just keep saying over and over again, it's Arya Stark. Stop asking me. Yeah, I, I, as their mother, cannot answer that question in any kind of good conscience. <laughs> I'm just saying we have a lot of squirrels in the backyard. Uh, we've also, We're not there yet. We've also created a mythical fifth child that we heap all of our our dark <laughs> thoughts upon. That's right. We tell them about their brother, Joe. Who doesn't exist. Who's locked in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> move move on. let's just go we on we just need to go just, just go on before child protective services gets gets involved okay uh theo graham brown says with the bit with the painting it's beginning to feel like warbreaker is essentially stormlight 0.5 to me good catch theo mm-hmm. can the duchess comment on whether it's just as linked to other cosmere books or is it definitely leaning heavily on warbreaker uh yes from what i know there are definitely the most direct crossovers between stormlight and warbreaker um not that there are not there are there are other um there are crossovers with the mistborn universe um and especially in the snapters with the other uh universes even some that there aren't any book series out there um so definitely at the end when we get to the end of oathbringer i am looking forward to just unleashing knowledge from the wiki um and, you know, the the copper mine, the 17th shard, all that stuff will kind of throw it all out there. Theo also says, I noted this bit, but there were also spren that looked much like Adolin's sword, at least before she'd been killed. They were entirely of vines and they had crystal hands and wore human clothing. So Adolin's sword is from an edge dancer. Mm-hmm. Yep. Alex Ortiz says, y'all had a discussion on the unmade last episode and you awoke in me a sort of revelation about them. Uh, and the snapters in the section uh, that really seem to support this concept. Uh, the non-sentient ones seem to primarily serve the purpose of feeding into the more animalistic, gestatory emotions of people. And given the author's religious ties, it makes a lot of sense uh, that they would corrupt people in this capacity. Uh, the heart of revelry doesn't just make people want to eat and drink to excess. It degrades people to their basis behavior to the point that they become beasts who concern themselves only with indulging. It's a sort of manifestation of sloth and gluttony, uh, given that the unmade have, up to this point at least, served odium in this war on humanity. It makes sense that the more primordial among them would destroy humans not just physically, but also mentally and morally. Odium can guide the war effort while the Parsh can focus on the actual killing and the unmade focus more on the sort of unraveling of the enemy in a tangential fashion. I apologize for being so verbose, but this is my first write-in and I adore the show immensely. Stay safe, y'all. No need to apologize. That was like beautifully said. I agree with every word and I feel like I can't even add anything to it. No, I think I agree. I think it's perfect. Uh, and I think it makes total sense. The unmade are sort of a, a another weird point of complication 
in this story that they are definitely more closely aligned with Odium, but obviously not perfectly aligned with Odium. I'm sure that, you know, we'll we'll have more about that in the future. Yep. Matthew Graham Brown says, the fact that the heart of the revelry is shaped like a human heart is, pick one, one, Sanderson being a comic genius, two, Sanderson being literal but without irony, three, just dumb. <laughs> Sorry, I meant to bring this up a few episodes ago, uh, and then he edited it based on a extensive conversation. You have to get on the Facebook group page to read it all. What is your take uh, on two. <laughs> I do think it was literal. For me, I, it, it tracked for me. Uh, I, I thought found it gross and creepy. Um, no, I, I think I even pointed it out where I was like, it just, it reminds me of like old sci-fi movies, yeah. you know, where like, like it's actually a heart in a vat beat, you know. Or like <laughs> the, uh, for me, it made me think of Madeline Langell and, um, you know, The Wrinkle in Time where the, the it was was an actual giant brain, like evil brain. Mm-hmm. So I, I think maybe it just depends on on your personal preferences, but that was a very, that's, uh the Wrinkle in Time series was very formative for me mm. in in enjoying sci-fi and and it like the evil brain was like such a creepy amazing moment. Um, so for me, it kind of tracked. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it just depends on who you are. Uh, Jared Anderson says, "How do you feel about Nin's ideas on justice and mercy, and how do you think his ideals will affect things through the rest of the story?" Well, I feel like I, we expanded upon sort of our feelings about. Uh, his perspective on mercy and uh, and how I think that's that's bullshit. Um, but how will his ideals affect everything throughout the rest of the story? I mean, I think we're definitely seeing his impact on the story now. I, I still think it's a it's an open debate about whether or not he didn't inadvertently cause the radiance to return himself. and and I think this whole conundrum about, you know, the idea of law and where Bam Bam Bigelow is going to drop his magical elbow next are are going to be huge, huge uh, things that come right down to the right down to the final conclusion of the whole series. I, I think this argument is central to everything Brandon Sanderson is trying to talk about. I agree with that. Will Massey says, what soundtrack would play in the background while the Skybreakers play Dodge Sack? OK, wait. <laughs> One, two, three, and we'll both say oh, what we think. I guarantee we're not on the same page. I'm just saying <laughs> okay, that, that's okay. why it'll be funny. Okay. okay. <laughs> one, two, three, then say it. Okay. Okay. One, two, three. Bad gotcha. reputation. <laughs> I like yours. I like yours. Gotcha. Gotcha where I want you too late. Turn back now. I mean, they're similar. Yeah. Do you remember that movie, Gotcha, from the 80s? No. Good. It's not deserving of brain space. <laughs> but but that's what it reminds me of. All right. Gustavo um, says, Chad, what do you think is the most important step a man can take? I think it's the next step. Yes. <laughs> For reasons we've already established. So we'll, yes. we'll move yeah. on. Yeah. Sorry, I was laughing because I read the next question. Thea Graham Brown says, as a side point, I love how much heavy lifting the, quote, ish in your 24-ish hours can end up doing these days. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, because this is a good. This is a good forty-eight hours. Later. It's an ish. Yes, very, we're doing our best, guys. Very ish. <laughs> and Charles Beckett says, "What is your favorite type of potato? Scalloped, uh, mashed." <laughs> Weak ass shit. Eric Algar says uh, the previous question got me thinking. If you had to eat human flesh, <laughs> <laughs> what sides would you serve with it? I mean, fava beans and a nice Chianti, obviously. I mean, there's that. <laughs> I'm gonna say uh, apple sauce and hominy. <laughs> Matthias Sanchez just says, "I'm so excited." That's great. That's how I feel, too. Absolutely. Right yeah. there with you. Katrina Newton says, how's your Capri Sun stash holding up? In uh, and aside from Capri Sun, what are some of the other things you made sure you had a lifetime supply of uh, that you might have to laugh about when it's all over? I don't think we oversupplied ourselves on anything. Sadly, nothing. And I am kicking myself for it because I went, For being you know, rational and reasonable? For being rational and going... People are overreacting. Not to not that people are over. I actually we are taking the quarantine very seriously. Um, I really believe that social distancing should be taken very seriously. But I thought people were overreacting to the the shortages that were going to happen, and I thought we're still going to be able to get to the store, even in countries where things are locked down. You can still get to the store. So I'm not going to buy all this stuff because I I think that that's that's selfish you know so i didn't you know buy all this stuff and now we're like our um we have had someone doing we've had a shopping service and when she came in and she had found a 20 pack of one ply toilet paper and we all jumped up and down it was getting touch and go because there for- it was touch and go there for i was like okay i'm googling how to make baby wipe i mean i don't even know what i'm gonna do you know um so it definitely has has increased my gratitude for any toilet paper at, at all uh, and i kind of wish i had been more of a hoarder for real Ooh, goodness and we are we are out of Capri Sun. It's it's a sad. Oh, we've gone many many days with no Capri Sun. <laughs> we did we did just get a case of ramen though, so that's helped. Yes, that's helped. Are you ready for predictions? I am so ready. All right. So I got a handful of predictions this time. Actually, a fair amount of them. Uh, the first one is Dalar is going to bring Venley into one of his visions. I don't. That's not a lot mm-hmm. of rocket science behind that. But here's right. here's where my prediction comes in. And it's going to backfire mm. because Odium already has his eye on Venley. Mm-hmm. And so I think this is going to not go the way Dalinar thinks it's going to go. Uh, my next prediction is the Nohadon vision actually comes from the spiritual realm. Mm. Perhaps even Nohadon himself. I'm mm. not quite ready to go that far, mm-hmm. but I think that's why it sort of sits outside of the visions that the Stormfather had brought him, which are, mm-hmm. you know, not sort of dynamic. And I also don't think it was just a dream. Mm-hmm. Adolin revives his dead eye. That's my next one, which I think I've said before. Yeah. Adolin will abdicate power. Okay. And my last one is that Ico, Ico, mm-hmm. Ico, Ico on A. Mm-hmm. We, I can't say Ico anymore. Yeah. Whatever his name is is going to come back to haunt them. Hmm. Like there's, I've not given Brandon Sanderson credit in the past for having things like that happen and then thinking, oh, he'll never come back to mm-hmm. it. And he has. Mm-hmm. So he proved me wrong. I'm going to I'm gonna say that 
Ico is not a character who obviously has a reason to dislike Radiance mm-hmm. and then has this thing happen to him mm-hmm. and then just goes away with no repercussions. Mm-hmm. I think somehow it's going to play back. It's going to come right. back around. So those are my predictions for this I chapter. I like it. Quality episode. Absolutely. I agree. Likewise, Duchess. Great job, as always. You can find us on Twitter at the DND Podcast. That's D as in David, N as in Nancy, D as in David Podcast. On Facebook at the Duke and Duchess. Please join our Facebook group page. That's where all the cool kids hang out. And you can find us on all the other social medias, uh, the, the, the Gram, the IG, the Reddits, uh, the Goodreads, etc., simply by searching for the Duke and Duchess Podcast. Hey, you know, we didn't have a great deal of participation this week in our Pimp of the Week, or week slash month, our Pimp of the Week contest. Not surprising, given that this has been the week of the, uh, you know, the largest pandemic in 100 years. Uh, So I can understand how this would not be at the top of your radar screen. But I do want to emphasize, in case it's not clear to people, that that is something that we're going to do as a standing Ongoing, practice. Yes. Yeah. That's not a one-off thing. So, uh, between episodes 114 and 115, if you're out there and you're sharing about us on social media, uh, and you, you share our, our website and our episodes and, and you pimp us out, then we're going to nominate you for our pimp of the week slash month slash fortnight, uh, contest. And if your name is selected out of that, we will allow you to choose one item from our, uh, Tea Republic shop, uh, and we will ship that item to you. Indeed. So, pimp us out, yo. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night. Now,